I'm going to teach today on controlling self. Controlling self. And I know that we, we talk frequently about breaking the spirit of control. But there is a realm in which you are to control yourself. Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32 says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. Verse, or chapter 25 and verse 28 says, He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. These are two verses that complement and expand upon each other. The first verse, Hebrews 16 and 32, is a great example of Hebrew parallelism or, or Hebrew poetry. It is common in the poetry that we're familiar with and uh, any, any regular poetry readers in the house. It seems to be a, uh, a dying attraction. But in Hebrew poetry, it's not just sounds that are repeated. It's ideas that are repeated and expanded upon. And so the writer says, he that is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And then he expounds on that with a similar idea that builds upon that thought and says, he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. It turns our common conception a little bit on its head. We are quick to overlook the flaws of the mighty and to forgive them because, I mean, my goodness, they have done great feats. They've, they've conquered much. But Scripture says that the one that controls his temper, the one who rules his spirit, is better than him that can conquer a city. You might be able to teach an amazing Bible study, but when your guest leaves, it's right back to cussing and fussing. You might be able to preach an amazing sermon, but you've got no ability to discipline the flesh. You could sing an amazing solo, but then go home and fall to the same thing over and over and over again. Too often we're willing to forgive somebody without that rule, without that discipline, without that, that control over their own spirit simply because they are mighty or they are skilled or they are talented or they're amazing. But the Bible clearly tells us you would be better off with rule over your spirit than you would be conquering a city. In chapter 25 and verse 28, the writer tells us that without the rule or without control, in fact, several other translations will translate that, that phrase, rule over. Uh, the, the two words translated as rule over in the Hebrew, this is the only time this word is used uh, in your Bible. But 
Several other translations will translate it as self-control. Without self-control, without rule over your own spirit, you are like a city that is broken down and without walls. Broken down implies a state of disrepair. Whether that be through your neglect or the action of the enemy. Ultimately, it does not matter how the wall was broken down, but that the wall was broken down. I want to walk through a couple of portions of Scripture in Nehemiah that I believe can help us to understand and to expound upon these two verses from Proverbs a little bit. In Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, Hanani, one of my brethren, came, he and certain men of Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of captivity, that are left of the captivity in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Hearing that they're in great affliction, hearing that they are in great reproach, hearing that the wall is torn down and the gates are burned with fire, brought Nehemiah to a place of weeping and repentance and fasting. And he begins to pray, and God gives him favor with the king of the land. Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He holds a very influential position, and he has prayed, he has fasted, he has wept so much that as he comes before the king, he comes with a sorrowful countenance. Now, some of us have that nailed, all right? But it was dangerous to come before the king with a sorrowful countenance. You were expected to be upbeat. You were expected to be pleasant. You were expected to have a smile on your face when you came before the king. Maybe that's just a little sidebar we could stop in for a moment. When you come to the house of God, you don't have to come with a beat-down expression on your face. You're coming before the king. And the king wants to see that beautiful face that he gave you. And you can put a smile on that face. Why? Because you have access to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But the king notices there's a frown on his face. And he says, what's going on? And Nehemiah, the solution that he arrived at in fasting and in prayer to resolve the affliction and the reproach of the children of Jerusalem was not more money, was not more food, was not a better governor, but it was to build a wall. A wall would solve the affliction. A wall would solve the reproach. We need to establish that there is a major cultural context that we can't just gloss over here. When we read about a city with walls, this is completely foreign to us. There is no wall that exists around Watertown. We, we live in wide open spaces. But in, in antiquity, in, in ancient times, 
walls were important not only for the safety of the city, of the city which, which is rather obvious, but walls were also important to the reputation and the control of the culture of the city. Walls allow you to control access. Walls force anything that goes in or out of the city to go in or out of a gate, a, compl- a controlled point of access. The wall allows you to regulate what enters and what leaves the city. And that's what the Bible's talking about when it says a man without rule over his spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. If there are no walls built around your spirit, if there's no control of your spirit, then anything can enter and exit at will. It can infiltrate into your inner man and you have no control over it. So, walls are important for the reputation of the city. To break down the walls of a city was to demonstrate its defeat and its humiliation. In fact, as you read through some of the prayers of of Nehemiah in these moments, um, of course, Jehovah reigns over the whole earth. Culturally, Gods were believed, with little g's, were believed to be geographical. And for Babylon to come in to Jerusalem or Zion, which was God's city, it's, it's a gem to him upon this earth, and to break down that wall was to bring shame upon the reputation of Jehovah himself. And this grieved the heart of Nehemiah. Now we've read through the prophets, we've read through Jeremiah, we've read through Ezekiel, and we know that God did this intentionally. He allowed he was not conquered, he allowed this to happen. But when our lives exercise no self-control, we bring reproach upon the name that's been called over us. And so Nehemiah gets permission from the king. He gets letters from the king. He heads to Jerusalem. And he surveys everything around. He begins to speak to the people. He begins to impart vision to them. And again, he he reaches his place. He sees the state of the people. And he doesn't establish a food bank. He doesn't establish a financial bank. He doesn't build up the military. He says, let's build a wall. And in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 1, it says that when Sanballat heard that we builded the wall, he was wroth and took great indignation and mocked the Jews. And he spake before themselves, will they sacrifice? Will they make an end in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of the rubbish which are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was with him, and he said, even that which they build, if a fox go up... He shall even break down their stone wall. Why is the enemy of the Jews so bothered by a wall? The temple was already in Jerusalem. You would think that they would be more bothered by the temple. Now, it wasn't fully completed, but it was in practice. It was functioning. 
They had fought against Ezra as he, as he worked to establish the temple, but the wall faces even more fierce opposition. Why? Because the enemy has understanding. If this wall gets built, my access to their city and my power over them is severed. Hell might not be able to stop you from coming to the house of God. The enemy might not have been able to fully stop them from going to the temple, but he can influence the temple if there are no walls built outside the temple that regulate access to the temple. If he can keep you not from coming, but he can keep you from building a wall in your life and walls at your own house, and he maintains access to you, then he's not scared of a temple. He allows them to have it, but he has access to it anytime that he wants. It's the wall. In Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 7, a little bit later in the same chapter, the people with a mind to work are working together. God is blessing them. It is brick upon brick, day by day. By the way, that wall in your life is not going to go up instantaneously. It will take diligent work on your behalf to begin to build boundaries and walls in your life and control access to your spirit. But they hear that the wall's up, Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabians, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, they're accumulating enemies at this point. They're naming even more enemies. They hear that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and the breaches began to be stopped. Then they were very wroth. They were mad when the work started. But as you gain, they're even more upset. And they conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Progress began to be made and the enemy began to threaten at an even greater level. The devil won't and doesn't have to fight you when you refuse to build walls of self-control. It really didn't matter how rich Jerusalem got. It really didn't matter how many mighty men they accumulated. It really didn't matter if they had reestablished culture because without the wall, they would always be vulnerable. It doesn't matter how famous you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter how elderly you are or how young you are, how respected you are or how well-known or talented you are. Without rule over your own spirit, you are vulnerable to any attack of the enemy. As we learn later in the book of Nehemiah, the enemy had operated during this time of no walls and seeds had been planted and impurity had been woven into the children of Israel. And even within the temple itself, Tobias, that Ammonite, had access into the temple of God uh, and he had access to the very secret things that were reserved for the very people of God. Man can do incredible things. God placed within us, particularly in our 
pre-sin state, before the fall of man, a very powerful human will. And you can see this demonstrated in the discipline that humanity at times is able to conjure. We have conquered frontiers. If you want an interesting read, read about the guy that first made it to the North Pole, the South Pole, and then found the Northwest Passage. Can you imagine pulling a sled through Antarctica to reach the South Pole just to be the first guy that did it? You ain't doing that without settling it here first and saying, I will reach the South Pole. That's discipline. That's structure, that's order. It didn't come to him on a whim one day, and he's like, you know what, I'm going for it. Perhaps nowhere is this more demonstrated of the, the, the ability of human will to establish something than in the realm of sports. Anybody ever plank? There's nervous giggling in the house. Maybe it'd be good for us every once in a while. To plank is to rest as a, with your body in a straight line only on your forearms and on your toes. And then to hold that position, apparently for an extended period of time. And it's supposed to be wild. Uh, if you want to try it later, not right now. Uh, maybe between services, give it a plank. Recently, and somebody set the record at 9 hours, 30 minutes, and 1 second. I have a hard time going to work for nine and a half hours. And this man held a plank with only his forearms and only his toes touching the ground for nine and a half hours. Now, he has a condition called complex regional pain syndrome that, depending on what day, various areas and regions of his body will hurt excruciatingly. But he did it to demonstrate even those with this condition can gain mastery over the body and force it to listen. It's not a death sentence, he was trying to say. You can still be fit. You can still work out with this pain syndrome. And so he planked for nine hours and 30 minutes. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8 is a verse that we Pentecostals know quite well. Bodily exercise profiteth little. <laughs> the point is not that there is no profit. There is a little profit in bodily exercise. The rest of the verse says, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having the promise of the life that now is, and that which is to come. So let's put this verse in context, because we like it. We're like, yes, bless God, I'm never exercising. When Paul wrote this, he was writing to a culture where only the rich existed in a state of food availability. Everybody else battled food scarcity. You did not know not what you were going to eat. You did not know if you were going to eat. And the main mode of transport were these things right here with a little bit of leather on them, if you were blessed. When Jesus said, be a two-mile man, 
What he's talking about is the kit of a Roman soldier. If any soldier compels you to bear his kit, the Roman law said that any soldier could grab a stranger on the side of the road and force him to carry his gear. By the way, that's 40 to 60 pounds of kit. You could force the stranger to take those 40 to 60 pounds and carry them for you one mile. But Jesus said, don't, don't do it just one mile, do it two. Anybody in here carried 60 pounds for two miles recently? All right. So bodily exercise profiteth little, but there is some profit to it. It can limit your effectiveness for the kingdom of God. I'm just saying. Uh, so get a little exercise. That part was free. Okay, men in various ways can demonstrate great mastery over areas of their human spirit. And man can demonstrate areas of great self-control. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 27, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Discipline exercised in any area of your life is always an improvement over lack of discipline. And no one in this room has gained control over every area of their life. In Scripture, we see Moses has spent 40 days on the mountaintop with God himself in the flesh. Well, Moses was in the flesh. God was there as close to flesh as he is until the person of Jesus Christ comes. And as he walks down a mountain, after 40 days in the presence of God, anger rises up, and he casts down stone tablets that were written by the finger of God. I believe he watched as letters are inscribed on stone tablets. David shows great restraint by not killing Saul twice. He shows great ability to encourage himself in the Lord when everybody's talking about stoning him. That's control over your spirit. That is rule over this inner man. But then he falls to Bathsheba. Solomon, a man of great sacrifice, a man of great humility, especially early in his reign, a man filled with great wisdom, the man who wrote our two opening texts, does not have rule over his spirit in the area of his wives. And his multitude of wives and their multitude of gods begin to turn away his heart from the Lord his God. It's often easy to spot the one with no rule over their own spirit. While their life may have some areas of discipline, the mind and their emotions do not. The Bible tells us in James of a particular area that all of us can struggle in. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Why can no man tame the tongue? Because the tongue speaks out of the abundance 
of the heart, Matthew 12 and 34. And so until you are filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost, there is in fact no hope for you to have perfect control over your tongue. Why? Because your heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Even if you've got rule over the athletic area of your life, or you've got rule over the diet area of your life, there is an area of your spirit that you will fall prey to time and time again. But it is not hopeless. It is not a lost cause because Jesus will come to live inside of us in the Holy Ghost and the Spirit will help us to develop self-control. You cannot win the fight for self-control, the fight for the rule over your own spirit without the baptism of the Spirit. You need Jesus inside of you. 2 Timothy 1 and 6 says, wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That word sound mind is discipline and self-control. The Holy Ghost that Jesus placed inside of your heart was more than an awesome experience at an altar. It was more than a get-out-of-jail-free card. It was more than goosebumps. It was more than you just feeling the presence of God. It was God, through His Spirit, establishing inside of you the ability now to bring this flesh into subjection and to make this flesh begin to obey the Word and the Spirit of God. Galatians chapter 5 and 22, perhaps a, a portion of Scripture that's quite familiar to us, but Paul writes and says, The fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Again, temperance means to be in control of self. A demonstration of the continuing influence of the Spirit upon our lives is not how often you speak in tongues, not how often you run the aisles, not how much you place into the offering plate, but it is your ability, or rather, it is, it is the ability of the Spirit. It's the demonstration of the Spirit producing fruit in your life. And one of those fruits is the fruit of self-control. As the Holy Ghost moves on our lives, He will begin to illuminate areas in which we struggle and we need his help. So how can we how can we do this? Well the first thing we need to do is we need to focus on fruit. This is assuming of course that you are faithfully reading the word, praying on a regular basis, walking in the spirit. You've already obeyed the gospel. Because until you do nothing else matters. Until you have the Spirit of Jesus Christ working in you, the only thing that we are working is human effort. Humanity cannot overcome sin, or this world would be a completely different place. If, if, if humanity was able to make themselves good and to control self, we'd be wasting our time in the house of God. But we're not. So once you've obeyed the gospel... 
Begin to pick a fruit. Pick a day. Every day focus on a fruit or do a fruit a week. I'm not saying go to a high V and buy all the apples or buy all the oranges. But this week, pick the fruit of temperance and spend the week praying and asking God, Lord, help me to develop and help me to produce this fruit in, your, in my life. God is serious about us producing fruit. And even as I begin to produce a fruit of temperance or a fruit of joy or peace or love, the Bible tells me that he's going to come along and he's going to prune me. Not because he's being a jerk and he just takes joy, but because he wants me to produce more fruit. So as I begin to produce fruit, he's going to come along and show me areas where I'm lacking so that I can produce him more fruit. Pick a fruit. Focus on it this week and, and pray and ask God, God, this week, help me to develop that fruit of self-control. Help me to develop that fruit of temperance. But as challenging as this may sound, God, it's important that we understand we rely entirely upon the strength of the Spirit. But there are some things God is waiting on us to do. Mark 8 and 34, Jesus calls the people to himself with his disciples. And he said unto them, whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It, it would be good for you to begin to focus on fruit, but it would be even better and more effective for you to do these two things together. Ask God to do what only he can do. We are called as disciples of Jesus Christ to a lifestyle of self-denial. We are not called to give this flesh or to allow this spirit to act or behave however it wants. We are called to discipline ourselves like athletes or like soldiers to keep this body in subjection Lest if we've preached to others ourselves, we become castaways. The question always becomes, because humanity always tries to weasel out of it, how far do I take this self-denial? How far is reasonable? Anybody know what I'm talking about? How, how far does God really expect me to go? Matthew 5 and 30, Jesus says, If thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it away from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. I believe Jesus is arguing from the extreme to illustrate a point. In the eyes of Jesus... There was no limit to the self-denial that his disciples were to practice to gain the victory in their life. Maybe I'll never be able to go to this place, or maybe I'll never be able to talk to that person. Maybe I'm going to have to lay aside my entertainment 
or a hobby that's robbing me of my closeness with God. Maybe I have to deny myself some things that my flesh really wants. But if I can gain the kingdom by denying this flesh, that is a great victory. There is great bonus, there is great blessing in me drawing closer to Jesus Christ by denying myself. For some of us, denying ourselves looks like throwing away the cigarettes again. For some of us, denying ourselves looks like pouring the alcohol down the sink. Do it again if you have to. For some of us, denying ourselves looks like taking a hammer and smashing our smartphones. Well, come on. For some of us, denying ourselves means pushing back from the dinner table and saying, you know what, I don't need to eat today. We were doing so good. It would be good to practice denying ourselves something every day. Now, you can't deny yourself food every day, okay, unless you have a very clear word from the Lord. and Please talk to me about it beforehand. Fasting is an incredible way for you to deny your flesh. And if, if you do not fast on a regular basis, I would highly encourage you to begin fasting on a regular basis uh, because you, you can begin to identify areas of your life where you do not have control. If you can discipline this flesh and say, no, we're not going to eat today, no matter how much your tummy gets the rumblies and you get that 4 o'clock headache, you just keep pushing away the plate and saying, no, I want God. I want to break this more than I want food. You're demonstrating to this flesh, I can go without. Deny yourself something every day. Maybe it's Facebook. Maybe it's caffeine. Maybe it's food. But begin to challenge yourself to give up something. Our denial should be relevant to areas where we struggle or areas where our spiritual leadership has determined that we struggle or identified that we struggle. Don't, don't just try to do this on your own and pick out the areas of denial. I don't struggle to deny myself street drugs, okay? So I, I can't chalk that up and say, this week, I'm not doing any shrooms. I did it again. 52 consecutive weeks. Just kidding, 34 consecutive years. And while we giggle, others do. And they need to practice denial in that realm. But I'll tell you what, I could get sucked into consumerism and the distractions of this world right quick. So maybe, maybe, just maybe, I don't look at a new vehicle. I don't look at a new home. I don't open Amazon. I don't open a shopping app today. Why? Because there's an area of self-discipline that I'm struggling in, and I want to rule this spirit. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so I recognize that when I'm filling my mind with advertisement and I'm always looking at new shoes or new clothes or a new car or a new house or new, new this, that, or the other, then I'm, I'm engaging in that. And so I'm going to sever it and gain control over my spirit. It's got to be somewhere where you actually struggle, and you cannot trust yourself enough to identify all of your own areas of struggle. You need to ask the Lord, and you need to ask spiritual leadership. Amen. Let's all stand in this place together. I want to rule over my own spirit. 
I cannot do this in my own power, but I am not left to my own power. I've got the spirit of Jesus Christ working inside of me. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, I believe that my life has begun to produce fruit for the kingdom of God. I'm not perfect. I'm far from perfect. You spend enough time around me, you're going to see that for your, your own self. You're going to see, okay, there, there's an insight. How can I help them? Pray for them. All right? But I want my life to be a life with rule over my spirit. I want my life to be a life of discipline. It's the, it's the spoken mission. It's the spoken desire of this church. Be a disciple. Make a disciple. You've heard it before, and I'll say it again. You cannot be a disciple of Jesus Christ without discipline. It is in the bedrock. It is, it is foundational to the identity of a follower of Jesus Christ. Self-denial, discipline, self-control. And by the power of the Holy Ghost, we can have it in every area of our lives. Constantly growing, constantly improving until Jesus comes back. So right now, I want us to lift our hands as we close. And I want us to have God, or I want us to ask God to begin to identify inside of us areas where I, I maybe lack in self-control. Lord, I pray today for myself, and I pray, God, for this incredible assembly. I pray, Lord, that you would speak into our minds, you would speak into our hearts. Help us, Lord, to exercise discipline. Help us, God, to bring this flesh into subjection. Uh, I do not want the enemy to have constant access to my spirit spirit, to my emotions, to my thoughts, or to my flesh. Uh, and so, Lord, by the power of the Holy Ghost, uh, we will work together to bring this flesh into subjection, uh, to build boundaries and walls around my life, God, so that you uh, and you alone have access to my inner man. Uh, I pray, God, that you would illuminate our hearts this week, uh, illuminate our minds, God, and give us the strength uh, to act upon what you have showed us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.